Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills and today I'm joined by Sam Williams. Hello. As always, guys, you can get in touch with us at Cookie Jar Golf on all of our social media channels. Keep an eye on YouTube. We are dropping some sensational content, probably bragging a touch there, but some great content over the next coming weeks, which we're really, really excited to push out to you. So make sure you keep an eye on that. And I'm sure on Twitter and Instagram, we'll be letting you know about it too. But um, keep an eye on it because we're really excited about it. Today we've got really high quality uh, podcast for you guys. We've got two guests on from Value 18, which if you don't know much about Value 18, we're hoping that you will do by the end of this podcast. It's um, Jasper and Sam that have come on. They're two of four of the, the guys that run Value 18. And without further ado, let's introduce Jasper and Sam. How are you doing, guys? Welcome to the pod. Yeah, doing very well. Thanks for having us. Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Absolute pleasure, guys. No problem at all. Um, why don't we kick this one off with the with the obvious question? Uh, what is evaluating? Um, what's it all about? And how did you guys get to uh, get to know each other? So, perhaps I'll start. Evaluating in the beginning uh, was nothing more than a Google Map with pins in it, basically. Um, <laughs> I had found that when I came to the UK from Canada, um, I was starting to find golf courses in and around London that I had never heard of before that were actually really decent golf courses, quite different than what I had come across. And the only real record I could find of any of these courses were books from, some from Tom Doak, but even more so Frank uh, Penning's books. He had two books that he wrote, uh, Golfer's Companion, and I think the other one, Game of Golf, one, one of the two. And I was carrying these around in my car. And if I was in an area for business, I would like finish my meeting and kind of walk out to the boot of my car, clubs in there, take the books out, see if there was anything nearby. And I just thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, so I started taking some of the information from there and then putting it onto this Google map. And that, that was essentially the beginning of Evaluating. Um, that map got shared with some mates of mine that were visiting from Canada and the States as they came over for business or meetings or whatever it might be. I would say, look, here's a map. You know, you might find some decent golf here that you might not know about. And they kind of said, yeah, it's a great resource. Can we, you know, why don't you make this available? Um, so as a hobby, that, that kind of kicked off the development of Evaluate Team, basically just a collection or a repository of, of pins on a map. Wow. It's almost like all great projects start with a map and just sticking pins in them, don't they? How many good stories start like that, right? And then how yeah. did you and Sam come together? So basically we, we started working on a... Uh, a map. There's a project that I, I undertook uh, for St. Andrews, the old course. So w when I was reading a lot of these old golf course architecture books, all of the famous architects always talked about the superiority of the old course and w what made it so great and why it was so better, so much better than every other course. So the idea was that I had to look at the old course from the perspective of the time that they were living in. So from early 1900s to probably 1930, uh, because obviously courses evolve, courses you change, te you know, technology moves on. And so I started this historical project. Uh, once I had that map um, basically done with callouts and all sorts of information there, uh, I got in touch with Joe and Joe had posted a few bits and pieces on Twitter and he's a very talented artist, and we, we collaborated on this first map. I provided a lot of the architectural insight, and he provided the, the artistic side of things. And obviously, Sam is a, a member of uh, Hoylake, and so is Joe, so there's an actual connection there. And uh, yeah, eventually, all three of us got, uh, got together. So the original maps, were they just sort of, were you hand-drawn, or were you just looking on Google Maps and saying, this is what I want to deal with? How did, that, how did that work? Yeah, so the... The, the original map for St. Andrews, um, obviously there, there's quite a collection, but the, the original inspiration was uh, Mackenzie's map from the early 20s that now hangs in the secretary's office. So it, it's in the back of quite a few of these old uh, architectural books, uh, like C.B. McDonald, I think, has one in the back of his. He kind of folded out and there's three or four pages that you can, you know, take a look at, A3 type thing. Um, 
And it, it has these columns. So there's like a line that will go from a bunker and you'll say, oh, this is Crescent Bunker, or Cottage Bunker, or Hell Bunker, whatever it might be. And I just thought, wouldn't it be really cool if you could get one map that has all of the landmarks of the old course called out on, on one map? And I realized like quite early on that that, that map didn't exist. Uh, so some of the Mackenzie some of the bits on Mackenzie's map, they, they're not called out. Um, but you can go back to basically the early 19th century, um, even before Alan Robertson. And there's maps of the old course that have different features that are, are, are mentioned and called out. And, you know, and so basically it started from going back all the way to that, all the way up to the modern day, and, and trying to collate all of this information. But uh, Scott McPherson was a big help. Uh, he's an architect that spent quite a lot of time at St. Andrews. He's written a couple of books Um and he's probably one of the the foremost scholars of the old course as far as the historical you know background to it. So he's been very helpful as well. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, The Evolution of the Old Course. So, so that was quite instrumental, uh, as well as like all these other golden age books that have been written about the old course. Yeah. So Joe was probably the he was the reason that we got together, and it's only a sort of. We're complete golf nerds and we love the architecture and we love the history. And Joe and I had been, we'd been talking to us. So if we have this WhatsApp and every day would be, we'd have found a picture of something and Hoylake as our home course was our sort of shared passion. And we probably spent six six months of of doing a bit of research and digging up old things on the course and old plans and and everything else and and this was at the same time that joe and jasper had been working on this fabulous map so this was before i'd met jasper and um it, it sort of all all came from from that because when the map that jasper has described went out and i'm sure most people will have seen the map of the old course at He's talking about when it went out the response from everyone was just crazy you know it was not just a technically accurate map that appeals to nerds like us who are interested in that kind of thing but the fact it's beautiful as well and it looks it looks fantastic and so many people said we want to have it hanging on the wall and there are some pretty pretty famous people now who have um, reached out to Jasper and Joe and myself and say, can we um, can we get a copy of it? And uh, it's crazy, the response. They're absolutely stunning, Sam. And I, I think, you know, it's right that we say on the pod now that Joe can't be here because you've got him locked up in a, in a sort of a strong room, uh, just working 24-7 now because the rate those things are appearing on Twitter is unbelievable. And the, and the quality and their watercolors and I'm starting to see things appearing of architects and you know you guys are doing stuff overseas with different clubs it's genuinely I mean the watercolors are I mean the websites will come on to but the, the watercolors are absolutely stunning pieces of work and uh, yeah the application for them is is huge and it's just the fact they are something so unique you know the perspective from looking straight down. All of the old, you know, Golf Atlas books and things like that, and they have this oblique sort of look down the course and they're rendered and it looks clunky and it looks, you know, the old stroke savers, they're fine and they do the job and they give the yardage, but they don't look anything like Joe producers. And who knows where it's going to end up, but it's, um, it's, it's, there's going to be more and more clubs who are interested in having it done for sure. You heard it here first. Watercolor <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> but the um, the you say Jasper, you started off with you know pins and pins in a map, and then the the map started to come about. Evaluating now is so much more, so much more than just the maps. Can you just sort of outline to our listeners maybe what what you encompass? Yeah. So. Uh... Uh, again, after I started playing some of these courses, you, you started to realize that uh, there, was a, there was a commonality between a lot of them. So you would go to a course, then you, you come away and you think, well, you know, who is responsible for that? And then you do some research and it would be Harry Colt or Tom Simpson or Alistair McKenzie. And, you know, th those names never meant anything to me 10 years ago. So, you know, I, I kind of filed that away. Um, and it, it actually boiled down to a um, an Amazon order. So basically what happened was um, I, I had 
read a little bit on Golf Club Atlas. I had uh, listened to a little bit on the fried egg uh, and some of Andy's stuff. And I realized that there wasn't a lot of that that was going on in this country. So I kind of had an idea that this existed, but I didn't really know the full, you know, the full picture of it. And we, we needed to get free shipping on one of our Amazon orders. This is like pre-prime. So uh, I think we had to spend 20 quid and I just needed like a few pence. So I ended up getting uh, a couple of books that uh, basically launched me into the, the architectural side of things. And I think one of them was Nicholas's book and one of them was uh, Trent Jones's book, which again, looking back on it now, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit golden crazy. age stuff, is it really? <laughs> no, not at all. But the first few chapters in those books basically opened up my eyes to the, the fact that this, you know, golf course architecture was an actual thing that it existed. And people actually thought about how they laid out a golf course. And up to that point, it had been, you know, I didn't even know this existed. Um, so from there, it was a, a, a tendency to go down these like rabbit warrens, um, you know, where you just get really intense and, you know, you order every single book you can possibly imagine about it and read it in a fortnight and, you know, digest it. So that's essentially what happened for about three years. I was constantly ordering books, anything I could get my hands on to read. And as I got that information, I started to basically build up the information on the website. So if I found a course that I thought was decent or I knew someone else that, you know, I respected or I'd learned something from, and they said, oh, you've got to go here to check this out, uh, do research on it you know, read what I could about it and then go and check it out, see, see what it was. So basically the information that we have now on Evalue 18, which is constantly growing, is a repository of all of that information all collated together um, against this map so that you can search for all these different things. So I know for myself, I'm a massive J.F. Abercrombie fan um, and by extension, a Tom Simpson fan. So for me, you know, if I have a choice, I'm going to be down in Surrey for a day where am I going to go? Well, it's going to be, you know, Warpleson or Coombe Hill or, you know, you know, New Zealand or West Byfleet or wherever it might be. But, you know, some people might know about those, those big clubs like the Warplestins or the Coombe Hills, but you know, when was the last time someone spoke about West Byfleet, you know? So, so for me, that, that was kind of let, let's pull back those curtains and, and, and show people, um, you know, what's there. And just because it's not a course that you necessarily haven't heard about doesn't mean it's not really in golf. Um, so, so that's kind of the motive behind the whole thing was just, just creating somewhere that could be uh, accessible for people to, to enjoy that journey for themselves. I should probably add as well, Jasper, having looked at the stuff that's in the journal section on your website, which there are some fabulous books on there. The shipping cost on those books is a inconsequential cost when you look at some of those. And I think you're quite good on the website in terms of calling out, you know, where it's been a valuable purchase and where it's not. And I think that's kind of good because, you know, some of these things are almost kind of sacred relics that you've pulled out and, and, and handed over extremely large sums of money for to kind of in the, in the quest for acquiring knowledge. Um, one of the things you talk about there, Jasper, is I guess partly what evaluating to me as someone who uses the site not based on kind of, you know, what we're talking about now, but as someone who's used the site is it allows you to use different dimensions to evaluate whether or not you want to go and play a golf course ultimately. And it takes it off this kind of two-dimensional, very transactional, here's a rank, and it's ranked one to 100. It's always ranked one to 100 for no particular reason other than the fact that it's just, it's just a very good way of telling people how good a golf course is. And I just think it's such a, a kind of a kind of basic way of saying whether or not you should play golf course. When you think there's so many factors, what I enjoy in a golf course is totally different to other people. So I kind of looked and you guys did this big piece on, you know, rank the rankings and talk about the different rankings that exist. So just talk to us about the different ways in, in kind of how you, I guess, how you both look at golf courses and how you, there's different factors, right? This isn't just a case of golf course on its own merit. Just tell us a little bit about that. So, I mean, for me, I, you know, uh, I love a day at Muirfield. Um, I love a day at Sandwich. Um, I, I think just part of the whole golf experience is, you know, showing up with a jacket and a tie and, you know, enjoying the, the intricacies of, of club life. I, I absolutely think that's brilliant. However, at the same time, I, I can very much enjoy you know, a, a Brora or a, a Minchinhampton experience where, 
you know, you walk out to the, the, the first tee and there's probably sheep, cattle or llamas in the way. And to me, the, the, they still, the, those are equivalent experiences. It's, it's both good. It's, it's all good golf. Um, so the, the presentation might be different. The, you know, the, the experience as a whole is two ends of the spectrum. But as far as I'm concerned, like, well, one doesn't necessarily have to be good golf or bad golf. Uh, from from what I what I think is is it's good golf. It's you know on the merits of golf it it works. So it's just different. Um, and I think that's the thing with with rankings that I find is that you know part of the reason behind that article that you spoke of was to try and establish you know what what are they actually ranking. So you say your you know golf course is ranked at twenty six, but actually when you look into it you've calculated like. Uh, amenities like a spa or a restaurant or you know and that's all fine and good like if, if if that's part of what you think makes golf good is you know is whether they have you know a five course meal at the end of the day great but it's tom really, really likes that jasper so don't don't bad man <laughs> tom, tom really likes the spa everywhere he goes, any of that, you know, the facials so i mean and I guess that's what it is. It depends on, you know, which ranking is right for you. And I think that's the point that we make is that we're not saying one ranking is better than another, but we just want to be transparent about what you're actually ranking. You know, if, if it's simply the golf, well, maybe National Club Golfer is the one for you. If you want to think about like the resort and the spa, then there's probably one for you out there. Um, but golf, golf for me is golf. It's what happens between the first tee and the 18th green. Um, and that's for the golf course. I completely agree and think there's there's different hats that I wear. So sometimes, you know, I'm Hoyate through and through. I've been there forever. It's one of the second oldest links in, in England and we have a great history. And I love going and playing matches against other royal clubs and captain's matches and scratch matches. And we have our jacket and tie on and we have a big lunch afterwards and it's a camaraderie and everything else that comes with it that's fantastic and that can never be reflected and that's i appreciate that if you're talking about club matches a lot of people don't have that and it's a good side of golf however um equally i think that if i think of all of the courses as i've played over the last 12 months or so one of my most enjoyable days was playing at Durness on the northwest tip of scotland it's a nine-hole course, different tees, so you can have 18 great holes. Uh, it was blowing an absolute gale when I was there, and I'm in 40, 50-mile-an-hour winds. And uh, they are, I think they have one, for, forgive me, maybe one or two greenkeepers, and they don't really They have a small clubhouse, but it's an honesty box, and you put your 20 quid in, and you go and play golf. And Harriet, my wife, and I, we were driving around the North Coast 500, and I played Dornock with a friend there, one of my favourite courses in the country, brilliant. But did I have any more or less fun when I played Nine Hole Durness for 20 quid? No, it was just different. And there are so many places like that that people will never have heard of and will never go to. And I've been trying to find them on Google Maps and there were loads on Jasper on Value 18, and it's a brilliant resource for finding them. But there are courses that are on Google Maps that you can't even see when you're looking at them. You know, it's some island off the west coast of Scotland, and I'm looking at it, and I'm zoomed in, I'm saying, is that a bunker? Is that a green? Is it a sheep? You know, you, you can't tell because no <laughs> one goes there. No one writes anything about it. And I can't wait to help populate the value 18 and hope more people find it because there's so much golf out there and it doesn't have to be a manicured parkland, water fountains, spa. That's fine if you want that kind of thing. But for me, there's a lot more to it than that. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you've got door knock and, you know, you can be paying a lot of money for a green fee and then paying 10% for, for equally as much fun. And, it's interesting, I think, that um, being in the media industry now, we kind of have the mantle that we need to represent some of these places that are not well enough represented and we've got to kind of give them the props they deserve. I mean, what's happened in recently, I don't know whether you've noticed that Mike Clayton, who's a um, former guest on the pod, has written a uh, an article about design rankings and 
or design rankings versus beauty contests. And, and one of the paragraphs he writes is that, you know, one of the, or some, some of these design rankings, some of the factors that are included are things like conditioning, ambience, and playability. When in, in reality, they're nothing to do with course design and nothing to do with how they play. I mean, what are your guys' opinions on those three things, sort of conditioning and the ambience and the playability compared to terrible so, things like course design? Well, I, I I I read Mike's piece. I thought it was great. And for, for me, golf over the past, whatever it is, 10, 20, 30 years, I'm not saying everywhere and I'm not saying it does, but there may be a case of the augustification of golf courses and they need to be presented with perfect greens and perfect fairways and tees and the golf clubs themselves have will have a green staff of x whatever it may be and they have so many man hours per week and so many um so many so much machinery and water and everything else and they say right okay how are we going to utilize our time to present the course and if the the only thing that matters is perfect greens and perfect fairways then that's where they're going to spend their time because that's what they think their green committees want and what the punters who come and play whether they're members or visitors that's what they um that's what they want but if that comes at the expense of less interesting bunkering you know tree management and the trees encroach it comes with smaller greens it comes with whatever it's greener so because they want to put more water on it so it looks nicer but it's softer and it doesn't get the same uh it doesn't play with the strategic design as it was meant to does that mean it's better i personally i don't think it does but you know that's a something that i think the more guys who um may be more interested in these kind of things because it seems to be a bit of a maybe it's just my echo chamber on twitter but it seems to be more people who are interested in this kind of golden age architecture resurgence again now and they're going to find themselves on committees uh over the next 10 15 years whatever it is and might start to think about these things again a little more and that's i hope well i think kind of you know Sam, that's probably one of the great things about evaluating is because if having perfectly manicured fairways and, you know, greens running at the speed of marble and a and a five-star spa experience afterwards is what you value in golf, and that might be the case, then actually you can hunt that down through what you're doing. And that's one of the great things you're doing in terms of looking at different dimensions. Personally, yeah, I, I would agree. Do we you know, are we overly hung up in terms of condition of fairway and having greens that that roll like lightning when actually you've got to remember the golf course as it was designed and you go back 140, 150 years ago, you know, they, they wouldn't have been dreaming a 12 on a stimp. There wouldn't have even been a stimp. So, you know, and, and fairways would have been cut short and, and just left to kind of go. They wouldn't have been overseeded every every few weeks and wouldn't need to have rolled like lawns. So, you know, I think there's a huge amount of truth in that. And I think, you know, like you say, Clates' piece on, on rankings is, is spot on because it becomes too much of an objective exercise to work your way down, not up. And actually, golf should be enjoyed by kind of looking for what's the experience I'm in for. Do you know what? Do I want to go out with my mates and drive for 12 hours to the middle of nowhere, stay in a bed and breakfast at £15 a night and kind of have an unreal experience? Or do I want to go away and maybe take my sticks on a break with my, my wife and, and, and enjoy some luxury and, and play a bit of good golf? So I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I do want to segue into, I hope you don't mind putting on the spot here, Sam, but you've got a bit of an adventure coming up in the next uh, few months. There's quite a bit on this, isn't there? So would you mind just telling us a little bit about it? It's, I'll be honest, I'm going to be living vicariously through you for the next few months. Yeah, so basically, Harry and my wife and I, we completely lost the plot over over lockdown, <laughs> and um, so we're we're very fortunate. We work for ourselves. We work in property, and we were we were sat there over lockdown, thinking, God, you know, what's the next six months, twelve months going to look like? When are we going to be able to pick up where we left off? And we were going through a bit of a phase where we were looking to do a little bit more and. And we thought we just no no one knows no one can predict what's going to happen. So if we're going to 
step a step back a little, uh, well, then why not take the opportunity of time that's being presented to us and make the most of it? So we've always the trip that I mentioned when we went to Dennis last year, and Dornock and Brora, we drove on the North Coast 500, the the route around the North Coast of Scotland. And out of all of the holidays that we've been on over the last however five, ten years, that was one of the most enjoyable that we had. It was so much fun. And we didn't have to get on the plane or, or do anything. We just drove up. We started in St Andrews and we worked our way up. And we thought, well, why don't we look at doing something like that? And we fell down this uh, this YouTube rabbit hole and we we're on van life stuff. And yeah, so so we're going to go and move from our, our house just down the road from Hoy Lake and going to go and live in a van. And to that end, there are now 170 golf courses, Lynx golf courses on my list. Many of them have... Um, it was Jasper's map on, on Evaluating. I basically just got the map out and said, okay, you know, if I'm going to play some golf, I love Lynx golf. Why don't I try and see all of the Lynx courses in Britain? It's worth seeing. And people come from all over the world to come and play golf in Britain. Maybe not this year, but, um, but they will again. And as I say, there's great courses that no one's ever heard of. And there are probably even a few more than... Um, then I can find on websites and books and everything else that this are out there. And um, courses up in, in Orkney, which is uh, Orkney and the Shetland Islands and off the west coast of Ireland. And people know about Asken uh, Scotland, sorry. People know about Askenish. It's been relatively talked about in recent years. But on those islands of South Euston Harris, there are half a dozen golf courses. And they all look fantastic from what I can find. So we thought let's go and let's go and have a look and see what we can see what we can see. And I take it from your story, your wife is a very avid golfer. You'd think so, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) so she's a reluctant caddy. I think she's a very patient wife, Tom. Not a very avid golfer. I think think (laughs) that's the one. That's the one. So in your uh, in your travels, you know what. What are the ones you're really, really keen to tick off? What's the ones you're thinking? So I'm more, not necessarily more, but I'd say just as excited to go and find these ones on the the west coast of Scotland that no one's ever heard of than I am to go and see the, uh, the more classic east coast courses. Because I've played probably the majority of the top East Coast courses. And like Jasper says, you know, the day at Muirfield is is one of the great experiences of golf and to play the old course and to play King's Bonds. And they're all very different. And, uh, you know, some are more classic members clubs and King's Bonds isn't, but it's a fabulous golf course. And all the way up to Dornoch, there's, there's a lot of very well-known golf courses. But if you look at most maps of Scotland and you look at the courses, there is a real glut on the East Coast. And by the time you get past Turnbury, Prestwick, Western Gales, Troon, there's very little on the West. There's You go out to Campbelltown kind of area and you've got Macrahanish and Jorah now and, and uh, those others, Shiskeen around there. So you've got a glut there. But very very little and it doesn't mean they're not necessarily there scots love their golf so there's loads of golf courses but they just seem to be nine hole courses or a little 12 holer where they don't have any kind of publicity at all and as we found with Durness, does that mean they're not worth playing absolutely not yeah, we had um, we had Tom Coyne on the on the pod, and he he said that when he walked around, it was like the ones he found were the nine holers that all there was was a brown sign saying you know, nine hole golf course around the corner is some of the, the best golf he ever played in his life. So it's no very very jealous, Sam. Very jealous. Are you doing you Ireland? You might have said it's always hard with UK, UK and Ireland. Are you covering a bit of Ireland as well, Sam? Well, we'll see how we get on. We're we're sticking to. Scotland primarily for the rest of the year. Uh, those 170-odd courses, they're just on 
Great Britain, so Scotland, England, and and Wales. Um, you know, some of the best golf in the world is again just a ferry ride away in in Ireland. And um, it's fun. I'll digress ever so slightly, but one of the best golfing buddies trips I've I've been on. We were very lucky last year. We went to uh, Port Marnock. We've got some great friends at Port Marnock. Um, County Down as the two headlines, and then we were. We there were a group of I think there were maybe six of us, and we'd been hosted by friends at, at, at those two places, world class golf courses, and um, and then we were on our way back. We were flying back from Belfast, and um, and we just went went online and turned up at, um, at Royal Belfast, which is Parkland Course, kind of by the by the water and it was it was wet when we were there we were there in october it was wet and muddy and you'd think by comparison to the other two big hitters it would be it wouldn't be as fun but we had such an amazing time because we were there playing an eight some foursome uh eight ball foursome uh match and just having a great time and and again that's something that you can't equate to a to a ranking or anything else because if you've finished the day and you've had a cracking time with your mates playing golf then that's that's what it's about surely it's just so much on the experience isn't it and i think it, I, I find it hard probably like i'll be honest here 99 percent of golfers will find it really hard to isolate their best golfing experience when it doesn't coincide with being a day where they play particularly well but you know nevertheless those days where you're with your pals and you're playing, you know, in a large group, being a foursomes or otherwise, and just having a great day at a place that I think a lot of it is like, I don't know, you could make it a bit highfalutin and liken it to maybe wine, but ultimately it's where you've, you, you've gone into something and it's far exceeded your expectation. And for me, great days at golf are always the ones where your expectations are, are below what's actually delivered. Anything in the other way always works out differently. Um, Jasper, you spend tons of time out on the road. You go out and see these golf courses. I mean, from when we spoke briefly, it sounds like, uh, you know, you know, kind of very regularly spending out time with, with different golf courses, walking the tracks. How do you kind of just, how do you get to capture some of that in terms of everything that Evaluate is doing, you know, everything from not just the course route in the architecture, but everything else the club has to offer? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. I think when I head to a golf course, um, it, 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 I try to avoid playing it, if that, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, when I go to a golf course, uh, I usually try to objectively look at it first. Um, if I'm just going out to play golf, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. I like to show up on the first tee, warm up a little bit, strike a few putts, and then, and then head out and just not think about it, you know, just, just play. Um, but when I go to a golf course to try and understand what's going on, um, it, it's quite different. So uh, it's more of a cerebral approach. I'll, I'll try and take my time to think about it, to to think about um, at the moment I'm doing a little bit of work on some, some Abercrombie courses, just try, trying, to, trying to understand his design ethos, what he did in various situations, how he dealt with you know, different landforms and um, things like boundary walls or roads through the property, um, just to try and figure out what he did in various situations so you know you, you get to a hole and you're looking at it from from a perspective of what have i seen him do in different situations so you know the first hole at bovey castle okay that's similar to perhaps you know the elevated t at number three at Knoll park for example what did he do and where did he go about it so i think from that point of view it's it's more of a an intellectual approach you, you're not really feeling golf if that makes sense um, but I find that to be quite satisfying as well. Um, you know, I, I can lie awake at night and just thinking about like, why would that string of pearls be that way? You know, and, and how come those fairway bunkers were running that way? Um, and why did he have two bunkers there as opposed to three? And why did he have one bunker on that front of the green and not, you know, so it's that type of thing that, that allows you to, to get insight. You're almost profiling this architect uh, by trying to peel back the layers to figure out what he was trying to do and why it works. Um, and I think that side of golf, uh, when I travel the courses and look at courses and trying to expose myself to a variety of different designs and architects, 
Um, it, it's just trying to gain that insight, that understanding of, of what makes this golf good. It's fascinating because I, I look at, like you look at the history of golf and I always incorrectly probably, but liken it back to almost like the butterfly effect. So, you know, I don't know if Colt quite liked warmer climbs, would he have gone down to Australia and taken the gig at, you know, rural Melbourne? I don't know. And then if that had happened, what would have happened with global golf course architecture as a result? And would things have looked radically different? Granted, they're slightly more um, nuanced than maybe um, Hollywood would pitch the butterfly effect as. But in the world of golf, I think it's quite significant. And you don't always have, there doesn't seem to be really good accounts around what architects did. A lot of it feels like hearsay. And looking on your you know, working through the profiles of different architects. You published one recently on Herbert Fowler. You know, there's there's quite a bit written about people like Mackenzie and Colt and some of the some of the mainstays. But you look at people like Herbert Fowler and it's not always that detailed in terms of what they did. And it's almost quite conflicting as well. So you look at his design ethos. How do you go about wrangling it? I mean, you take Fowler as an example because you've looked into it. And even by your own admission, you would probably say it's really hard to figure out how much they would have fought for those own for their own design ethos if that makes sense yeah absolutely so i mean this is one thing you've got to keep in mind and this is it whenever i do research one of the things that that i've come across is that you know you'll go to a course and they'll say oh we, it's a cult course and you think okay so like cult laid it out in probably like 1912 before world war one it interrupted the exercise and then he cracked on with it after World War One finished. So like it basically was a farm for eight years. And by that time he probably had twenty other projects on. So he probably didn't even show up to the site. He just farmed it out to like Harris and they came and built it. And you know, when you look at Colt's early work, as opposed to like his work in the nineteen ten to nineteen twenties and the nineteen twenties to nineteen thirties, and then, you know, he goes abroad and you know, when people say I've got a Colt course, well, like what cult course are you talking about? Like what, which era is, is the cult from? And, you know, the same thing could be said for, um, for, for a lot of these architects, um, you know, they, they wrote um, quite a lot, whether that was books or whether it was newspaper articles. Um, but one of the architects that really stays um, true to like his original ethos is Tom Simpson. And that's probably because, um, you know, with the, with the Woking connection with with John Lowe and Stuart Patton, um, it, it was basically at that point he he had fixed in his mind the strategic golf, how it was going to work, minimalism, how one bunker can affect, you know, well not one, two bunkers basically in the middle of the fourth fairway, you know, can affect this whole hole. So uh, when you when you look at golf courses, you have to remember the the era that they were built in. So that, that could, like, what was, what was possible when they were building the courses with regards to machinery? Um, what was possible with manpower? What was possible with equipment? You know, what kind of ball were they using? What kind of shafts were they playing? Um, you know, all of these different factors contribute towards the decisions that they were making. So it's interesting with the, uh, the Fowler piece that was written and put up on the website. Um, that, that's from quite early on, or quite early on pre-World War I. And he puts in par fives at 9 and 10, and then he finishes with three par fives back to back to back to finish like 16, 17, 18. Now, you know, if you ask most people today, it was how Herbert Fowler a genius. You'd say, oh, yeah, he's a brilliant golf course architect. But if you came around to a golf course that had, like, finished with nine as a par five, started with 10 as a par five, and then finished par five, par five, par five, you'd be thinking to yourself, like, who is this? Who is this guy? Um, so it, it's interesting that I, th I think back then, and may maybe that's why it works, is that you go to these golf courses that Sam were talk was talking about, um, you know, you go to the Durness or, or some of these courses that were laid out, and and they're not inhibited by the so-called rules of golf course architecture. They, well, what does the land give you? I, I don't have a D6 dozer to push around like tons and thousands of cubic yards. And, you know, I just got to work with what I'm given here. So, you know, the, these guys, you know, they, they just lay out the course as the land is there. And, and, and in the beginning, I guess that's kind of the way it was. You just kind of had to work with, with what you had. Um, so a lot of these golf course architects, like, 
you know, to pin them down and say, well, all cold bunkers have flash faces. Not the way it works. You know, there, there's quite a different variation between early cold bunkers and late cold bunkers. Um, so, yeah, you just got to keep in mind, really, I guess, the, the areas that they existed in and, and what they're trying to accomplish in the clients, even that they were working for. How deep were their pockets? How much did they want to impress? And you're right. You think of the old course. And if you say, okay, almost with the exception of the first, you know, the rest of the first half dozen holes are basically blind and for, from the tee, you've got two par threes. You know, it's not just like the what, what became commonplace in the post-Second World War up to probably the core Crenshaw, Tom Doak and everyone else in, in the sort of rebirth of, uh, you know, golden golden age architecture 2.0. You don't have to have two par fives, two par threes on the front and the back nine and, and have these two loops of nines that come back to the clubhouse and this very formulaic and a restrictive set of rules. And some of the oldest courses didn't have to deal with that because they didn't become established norms that people expected when those courses were laid out. And some of the courses that I've talked about, you know, the, the ones where, you know, nine holes is enough and, and you don't have to have this thing because people are going to come and people are going to post a review on TripAdvisor at the end of it and say that course was rubbish because it only had three par threes or, or had three par fives to finish, as Jasper says. You know, it's if you become unencumbered by these arbitrary rules of, of what a golf course should be, then you have so much more option for creativity that you that you lose otherwise. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Colt stands out as someone that was probably the least formulaic of the Golden Age architects. And if you look at someone like uh, our home course, which is uh, Blackwell in the Midlands, which was a Fowler-Simpson course, primarily Simpson, has got a lot of the Simpson sort of design aspects that you would expect. And it's got bunk fairway bunkers on the right, and they like to triangulate the holes and have an odd number of bunkers around the greens and that sort of thing. And Colt kind of stands out where he kind of went against that a little bit and wasn't so formulaic in his approach. But outside of cult, do you think understanding course architects and understanding how they design courses has helped you develop into be a better golfer by understanding how they wanted you to play the course? Mm. Uh We've flawed them here, Tom, with that question. You've you've given them two options. They've got to admit that they're either struggling with their game or they're going to look exceptionally arrogant. I knew who's head. going to go first here out of Jasper and Sam. Oh, no, I was, I'm going to let Sam go. <laughs> we'll wait. Well, the, the thing is, I don't know how many of these courses that we that we talk about, how many of them truly retain their strategic uh, design ideas that that they originally laid out to. Now everyone goes on about the driver and the golf ball going too far. And you know, if you're talking about the original layout, then of course the bunkers are completely in the wrong place nowadays for for most guys. Um, but also, it's it's not just it's not just the driver. It's the it's the lob wedge and the irons. And if you can, if you are completely out of position position being defined as whoever the or whichever architect it was he said okay this is the if you want to attack this green you go down the right hand side to open up the channel and it's risk reward and the 17th at the old course if, if i if i hit my ball 20 yards left of the fairway because i don't want to go in the hotel um yeah it's an extreme example so it, I am still having to contend with the bunker and the the wall and the and the the angle of the green if I'm coming in from the left, but I have a much better chance of managing that with my sixty degree lob wedge, uh, with the grooves on it that are going to spin my Pro V one and have a chance of holding the green than young Tom Morris did with his niblick and his and his gussy ball. You know, there is there is no comparison. So I think that one of the best competitions or professional events that I'd say most people have watched 
in relatively recent times was the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne the other year. And that is probably one of few courses that has retained the strategic elements of course because it still has the width and it still has the firmness. And I watched Tiger Woods as a kid in 2006 when the Open at my home course, and the course was as brown and firm as anywhere. Um, I played, I remember, the day after on the Monday, and you couldn't stop your ball on the green. It was it was just like rock shooting off through the back. Um, but Tiger Woods came on, and he hit two iron everywhere, and he put on an iron masterclass, as he often does, and he won. And, um, and then Tiger Woods, 13 years later, plays in his President's Cup team, and did anyone play better than Tiger Woods? Possibly not. You know, it was... It shows that when the course retains the strategic ideals that it was designed to and keeps the firmness and keeps the width from the angles, then it's as relevant now as it was when Mackenzie first laid us out. But so many courses, budgets maybe don't allow and the fairways get narrower because they want one line of irrigation heads down the centre of the fairway because it's cheaper and they don't want to maintain the trees. So all of a sudden, the width from the angles everyone talks about has disappeared and the bunkers have changed and it's soft and everything else that we've talked about. And you can read about these old courses and think, God, wasn't that such a great design because you've got to think about this bunker here and then this angle into the green here. But in reality, nowadays, what do you do? You stand there, you smack driver over the bunker and you hit a lob wedge onto the green. And often it goes very wrong, as it does for me, maybe not for you guys. But when it goes right, it's completely toothless. And that's parts, I would say, losing the strategic design ideals and the equipment and everything else that we all talk about. I think there's a lot of truth there. I think it's a good example as well. I mean, Hoylake's a great example, 2006, with Woods' win, where it's just it becomes a leveller because really anyone can find the distance. It's more positional play because actually it's running like a car park. And, you know, the great, great champions, you know, inevitably come through in firm and fast playing conditions. I think Bobby Jones won there in 1930 and on the, I think, 16th green or something, or the 18th, he held a, you know, stiffed a bunker shot and they were dipping between groups they were, they were tipping a bucket of water around the hole just to give players a fighting chance in between to kind of uh, allow them to get near um I, I look at this and think america's massively further evolved in terms of thinking about golf courses for the future and it's really easy to get caught into the trap almost like we are maybe now for the last 40 odd minutes talking about golden age design wasn't it wonderful and there was all this kind of you know they were so much more you know aware back then of how golf should be played and then we drift into this post-war world where it all sort of just crumbles apart but america seemed to be much further advanced in their thinking and i, I wonder whether what makes us great in the uk which is i can play any golf course in the uk give or take there's obviously some ex exclusions there for a fee and therefore people replicate golf as they see it on TV versus in America. I can't play golf anywhere for a certain fee and therefore innovation thrives. I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking, is there some truth in that? And that's where you're starting to see your band and dunes. You, you know, start to see huge renovations to places like Pinehurst that were almost kind of lost in terms of Ross's initial design. You see places like Sweetens Cove, Winter Park, all these kind of different formats, different takes on the game, all starting to thrive. I don't know whether I, well, I guess those yeah. are basically the ones you can play for two hundred bucks. Maybe not um, Pinehurst number two, but uh, you, you know everything that Mike Kaiser's done for golf in America over the last 20 years has probably we wouldn't be having this conversation now if this Chicago businessman hadn't decided to take a punt on, um, you know, bringing over a Scottish architect over to, to Oregon and building Bandon Dunes. And the runaway success of that means that you can, and you know, when we were talking before uh, about you don't need a spa and you don't need everything perfectly manicured. Well, sadly, our 
we were we were meant to be going to Bamberg. It was one of the um, COVID casualties of this year, and hopefully we'll go next year. You had a few by all accounts, but we won't go into that now. <laughs> no, let's not. <laughs> but um, but it's you know somewhere you can go, and it's all about the golf, and it doesn't. You don't need this palatial clubhouse and and five star hotel. Uh, you know, there's places to go for that, and it's and it's very nice when you do. And like I say, you know, everyone enjoys a spa. But um, <laughs> but equally, you want to go and water features on the 18th <laughs> hole. He really likes them as well. So. <laughs> but going going somewhere and you just play golf, and you might play 36. You might go and play the par three course afterwards, and you with your mates, and you have some beers, and you have a good time, and there seems to be more and more people copying that model because it's proven to be successful because people like to get back to the crux of what golf is and it's that out of nature, the camaraderie and everything else. Um, but there were so many years of the Fazios and the Nicholas's and the RTJs and everything else that uh, that maybe maybe it was it was down a different path and, and it's taken someone like Mike Kaiser to wrestle it back to... Uh, to these principles. What I think is interesting, um, certainly from my point of view, is that from from the US side of things, certainly that Bandon and Sweetens and all these things that are kind of pay and play and it's becoming kind of the mecca of a American golf is the, just the basic model of British golf. And I think what's really fantastic about you know, bringing it all around the circle as to what you guys are doing is this stuff isn't you know the rarity here in britain this stuff is the norm in britain and we can go play some of these courses that are just on our doorstep and it's so available to us and i think i think we forget how blessed we are here in the uk with just courses coming out of our ears about how good how good we have it here yeah i totally agree with that i think i think for me i mean my perspective is i'm coming from canada so you know i i grew up like you know, buying Golf Digest magazine and turning to the back page and like opening it up and it's like, oh, trips to, you know, play the old course for three and a half thousand pounds. And then at the time, you know, you, you do the conversion and it was like 9,000 Canadian dollars and you think flip, that's like, you know, six months worth of wages for my dad. And, you know, like there's no way in hell I'll ever get like over to, to England to see this or Scotland to see the old course, let alone all the other courses. So, you know, for, for me, it was just a pipe dream. So I, I, I basically had to be con- quite content with just you know playing so so what do you shoot for well in canada growing up you know it's like well uh, i've got my local municipal course but uh you know the, the 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 big golf magazine in canada says that this resort course is the best course so okay so i'm going to move heaven and earth to try and figure out how to play that course um if i can't afford to 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 play it well i'm going to figure out a way to pick range balls so that they'll let me play it you know, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, okay, we played a bit of golf and, you know, amateur tournaments, things like that, and got around and played some decent golf. But uh, I think the, the the brilliant thing, we talked about America being so far ahead that it, it's almost that, that the Britain, England, is so far behind that it's almost leaving the pack again. Like you talked about, like, coming full circle. It's almost like the fact that you're lagging behind. It's actually the fact that now you're, you're almost, like, ahead of the game again. So be, because we haven't gone down the road of like 70 years after world war one that we we just like you know basically we're good you know the, the courses are good at how they are and why would we want to change them and i think they're you know served us well for the last 70 years why can't it serve us well for the next 70 years yeah exactly but it's almost because you haven't gone through a lot of the courses you know perhaps other than maintenance or, or tree management like they, they really haven't changed since world war ii a lot of them um, and, and to be quite honest, a lot of the changes that have occurred on a lot of these courses since World War II uh, haven't necessarily done them any favors. So you've almost got a, a situation where you've got a golf course that's, that's essentially untouched, and it just needs to be like polished a bit and like sorted out a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's like it went from being a little bit neglected um, because we like it that way to like being world class. Um, and one of the examples of those is, is like the Addington in London. I mean, absolutely stunning golf course. Again, J.F. Abercrombie, a little bit of Colt influence. Now they've got CDP working in there. You know, we talked about Mike Clayton before. Um, what they're going to do with the Addington, like if, if you don't know about the Addington now, you will know about it in five years. 
um, because it will be world class. And and it, it is it's a sensational golf course. Um, but because they haven't touched it and they haven't messed with it, it's it's actually right where it needs to be to become like world class again. So it, it's almost the fact that you've like you've missed that whole middle bit that you're exactly where you want to be moving forward. And the fact that you're so far behind America, you know, um, it's actually not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. It's interesting you mentioned those guys. I mean, we've got <clears throat> Clayton and Pont and Mackenzie and Ebert doing a lot of good uh, renovation work here in the UK. I mean, the Addington itself is, from what I understand, is is kind of overgrown a little bit. It's got a lot of um, blind tee shots and a lot of really sort of throwback to the olden things going on back at the Addington. Yeah, I mean, as far as blind tee shots, I think eight, uh, eight plays uphill. It's a, I mean, you, basically the the way you look from the tee, you, you know what you're meant to do. It's a bit of a hog's back on the top of the hill. You, you I mean, you, you get from the tee that you're supposed to like hit it down the middle. Uh, then you get to the top of it and the fairway kind of falls away on both sides. Then you've got this amazing green set on this hog back that kind of falls away like into a valley at the back. Um, it, I think on a lot of them, like the the tee shots, not necessarily blind, but uh, there's lots of forced carries, but not ridiculously. Um, it might be visually intimidating, but that's always nice because when you pull it off, you feel good about yourself, uh, which is quite nice. Um, but the, uh, I mean, the, the 12th, if you build a hole like the 12th now, um, that, that par three, or even the, the hole before it where you kind of hit off and then it like steps down, you know, this crazy, you know, hillside. Um, again, if you did that now, you know, people would say, oh, well, what is this guy on? What was he thinking? But, you know, they did it then and it was amazing and it's still amazing now. Um, but yeah, the Addington is, uh, it's an incredible golf course and, and it's only one that you're going to hear more about moving forward. It makes me think of like an old grand house that's apparently so Ryan, the owner, is the perfect owner for, for the addict because it's proprietary at the end. And, um, and he's the one bringing in Frank Pont and, and CDP guys. And um, to have a course like that, like, like Jasper says, it hasn't been it hasn't been buggered up by someone someone else in the 70s or 80s because they wanted to homogenize it and make it like we've like we've talked about um make it resorty or anything else so the fact that it was glossed over for so long means okay you know the trees are the fairways are probably a quarter of the or the playing corridors between the trees are probably a quarter or a third of what they were when it was designed but it's only words. Word. They can be. They can be stripped out again, and they will be. And the course that they'll be that they'll find it will probably be one of the best, the best sort of golden age design courses like we like we've talked about. Um, and it's it's in London, and it's there, and it's it's just waiting to waiting to be smartened up and and brought back to its former glory and refurbished. I think there's a hell of a hell of a big plan there isn't there i certainly seen that they're, that they're embarking on quite a big big long-term plan there i mean just in terms of the golf that people enjoy in the uk where do you where do you see that at, at the moment in terms of you know i look at it and think well you know i suppose like you said a lot of courses would benefit from some of this restoration works bring back maybe golden age principles but where do you see people's kind of take on golf at the moment you know i think we've seen an increase in playership post lockdown because it's one of the few sports you can get into but you know people seeing a good side or a bad side or maybe just their side of golf like what's your what's your take on all that so i think from my perspective is uh you know i think we spoke about this previously that there's a growing awareness the the tide is rising uh with regards to an understanding of golf course architecture i mean you look back at the the, the newspapers that were in there was like a, a weekly article in major newspapers in the United Kingdom about the benefits and, and the strategy of golf course design. Um, so, you know, ardent golfers, like post-World War One to World War Two. I mean, you pick up a, a Sunday newspaper and you could be guaranteed that there's going to be an article about golf and probably about the merits of some hole or course on, on architectural grounds somewhere in that newspaper. Um, and I think... Personally, I, I think that awareness is growing. I mean, there's there's absolutely no doubt that the market in America is so much bigger. Part of that is due to just the fact that they have a lot more people than we have here. 
Um, and by extension, they have a lot more golfers. And, you know, they have the PGA Tour, which brings a lot of eyes and ears to, you know, to golf there. However, um, I think that's one thing that has taken me a few years to appreciate coming from Canada, coming to the UK, is how good the golf actually is. So I think you'll probably find a few things. Um, most people now, you know, they'll, they'll come to, to Ireland and they'll play the, the few big courses. Uh, they'll come to Scotland and play the few big courses. But I think England and Wales will, will have a bit of a resurgence moving forward. People will start to appreciate, you know, the, the sandwiches, the deals, the princes, um, the golf that's on offer. Um, and, and I think w within the golf community that already exists in the UK, uh, just because of people like yourself and hopefully people like us um, that, that are trying to to raise awareness of, of the the immense privilege that we have to play in a country that has so much great golf on our doorstep, um, that, that those people will, will find an interest there. And, and I think that's the point for me is that we, you know, we don't need 10 casual golfers to take an, or, uh, an interest in, in golf course architecture because actually if you just have one serious golfer that says, oh man, there's like, there's a lot to like learn and enjoy and understand about golf course architecture. It, he'll do far more for the game and far more for your podcast and your website and our website than like 10 average club golfers that, you know, just want to go out and have a few beers with the, with the guys. So yeah, I don't think it's necessarily all about numbers, but I do think that we're, we're well positioned moving forward to take advantage of this like rising tide of awareness. Uh, and that, that can only be a good thing because you know, we, we are absolutely rich when it comes to what we have here. And it's just, sometimes to, to help people understand what they've got, but also to help clubs understand what they've got as well. I agree entirely. And it's not, um, you know, we'll, with the evaluating and what you guys are doing and Instagram and everything else, there's a lot that we can do to, to sort of showcase some of these places. But if you can't go on holiday this year, because it's been cancelled with COVID and quarantine or whatever, and you're a golfer, and you're a golfer somewhere in the middle of the the country, go and play some links golf somewhere. It doesn't matter where you are. You know, it's such a small, we're such a small country. You can go anywhere in a few hours drive. And if you go down to Kent and okay to play Royal St George's in the height of summer, it's not particularly cheap, but maybe George isn't the best example if they've got the open next year because you'll be on you'll be on mats. But to play in the autumn and the winter, Lynx Golf, it will probably be blowing a gale, but you're not going to get any mud on your shoes. You're not going to lose a golf ball and you're not going to have too much of an inferior time. You can have a great time. And where we are where I am in the in the northwest, you know, we've got Hoylake, Birkdale down the road, Royal Lytham down the road, and um, all the Open Championships has been held there. But you've got Formby, you've got Westlanks, you've got Hillside, you've got SNA, you've got so many, you've got Wallasey, you've got so many great, great golf courses. And you can play them on the 1st of January or the 1st of July, and they'll be different. The rough will be longer on, on in the middle of the summer. But apart from that, it's it's fine turfs and and it's not going to be it's not going to be muddy. Your ball's not going certainly not going to plug in the fairway or be miserable. You can go and have a great time, and it will cost you relatively little to do it. It certainly costs you a lot less than going to wherever it is on the plane and and staying in a hotel. If you just drive, stay in the local B and B and and have a few a few good days with your mates playing some world class links golf that you don't get and then uh, there's no better place and i think lockdown made us all appreciate that a bit more there's no better place to spend your day than on a golf course go up to Silleth, go up go to you know wherever this stone or or uh or wherever it may be and that's jasper's the benefits of jasper's map you know they're all over the place and you might have to drive a little bit further but it guarantee it'll be worthwhile doing. And it's part of the fun. It's part of the fun, isn't it? At the end of the day, that's that's all. That's what we're in it for. It's for the adventure. We're certainly not in it for a living. With a few scant, <laughs> no, we'd be in trouble if we with were. With a few scant minutes that are remaining, <laughs> with the exception of 
the artwork, which is fabulous that I'm sure you will point people towards. Jasper, Sam, where would you point people towards on your on your website to find out more? Um, I, I think just the interactive map. I mean, if you if you head to the homepage, there's one click, um, and basically it'll find you. So if you're in the UK, you click on the map, and it'll basically show you where there's decent golf uh, right next door to you. So so hopefully you're not too far away from that. Um, we do try and keep up with journal articles just to uh, you know keep something of interest there to to make people think. Um, so tomorrow we'll put out a little bit on uh, Herbert Fowler and uh, his ideal golf course. Um, but yeah, I think it's the map really. And then we're, we're constantly trying to to add information to the golf courses uh, individual profiles. Uh, and as we go and see courses and we add to them, we we kind of give our take on them. We try and do a little bit of a like a Tom Doak esque type review, not not as uh, um, as, <laughs> as, uh, as the confidential guide. But um, anyways, we we the the beautiful thing is that we probably don't have any courses on the website that are Doak ones, twos, or threes. So you know we can basically just bang on about how good the the good ones are that are on there without having to worry <laughs> too much about the other ones. Um, but uh, yeah, just head to the website, have a have a little mooch, and uh, you'll probably find something that uh, that will interest you, and you, you'll be able to find the type of golf that you like. And I, I think that's for me. You know, if, if you're a Lynx fan uh, and you're from Wales, well, you, you'll you'll find those courses. If you're uh, in the Surrey Sandbelt, you'll find those courses. And uh, if you like, you know, resorts and uh, you know the, the the facials like like Tom does that we find out. Just point me to the stars. That would be great. No, I think we have a total package collection, which basically is uh, the courses that still offer good golf, but also you can get your massage and uh, your, your, you know, palatial, your palatial suite as well. So Tom's all all about the room service. All about the room (laughs) service. Um, Jasper and Sam, I I would stress this is your first time on the pod. Not thank you for appearing on the pod. I'm looking forward to getting you guys back on um, in due course. And uh, apologies in advance for for spamming you with updates, Sam, as you go around the UK exploring the shores. And I mean, if I've got one parting gift for you, it will be uh, pack your waterproofs, son. You're going to need them. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just glad someone will be following me. <laughs> but no, it's been an absolute blast, guys. Um, I really thank you for coming on the pod. And and genuinely, what you're doing in the game is absolutely absolutely awesome and and we wish you all the very best with it and we look forward until when we speak again so uh many thanks very kind thanks guys watch this